for those of you guys watching online right now from coast to coast and across the fruited plains, my name is Joe. I'm the pastor here at Lynchburg City Church. And if God puts it on your heart to give to the church, you can do so by going to lynchburgcitychurch.com. With that, please take a second. Just pray with me right now, guys. Jesus, we love you because you first loved us. That's amazing to think about that. We, we love you because you first loved us. Thank you, Jesus. Lord, um, so many things to pray for right now. For President Biden, I pray for wisdom. I pray for a special grace. I pray for protection for him. For our soldiers, sailors, airmen, marines, coast guardsmen, those serving at home and abroad, we pray for their safety. We also pray for their salvation. Lord, we think of the persecuted church. Leah Sherabu being held by Boko Haram in Nigeria because she's a Christian. Pastor Youssef in prison in Iran because he's a Christian. Pastor Wang and Pastor John in prison in China because they too are Christians. For our brothers and sisters, Lord, in Afghanistan, in North Korea, in Somalia, in Eritrea, in the South Sudan, in Nigeria. We remember those who are in chains, as the author of Hebrews tells us. We remember those who are in chains, as if in chains with them. Please, God, help them right now. Help them, Jesus. And I pray you'd help us today. I pray you'd help me today. Help me to say only what you want me to say. Lord, if I'm planning on saying something and you don't want me to say it, then, then don't let me say it. And if there's something I have no intention of saying, and you want me to say it, then give me a word. I pray for a fresh filling of the Holy Spirit in this moment. I pray for those of us here, listening, watching, that you'd free us from distraction, from anxiety, from whatever stressors are competing with our attention, our affections. And we just hear from you right now. We just want to hear from you. Help us. In your name we pray, amen. So today, we will begin a new era, Lynchburg City Church. And if it's your first time, the reason I say that is because we just finished a 45-part sermon series for the book of Genesis, which means we're starting a new book today. And um, at Lynchburg City Church, we love expository preaching because it's awesome that is and if you're not familiar with the term expository preaching that's where you go verse by verse chapter by chapter it is unedited it is unfiltered and you just there it is you take what god's word says about whatever topic we're not skipping it and we're, we're just driving right through the text and so today we are in the new testament after being in the old testament for so long we are in the gospel according to John. And yes, yes, it, it is exciting. Um, how long we will be in the gospel according to John, I cannot say. Did you say five years? <laughs> man, I don't know if I have the cardio for that, man. Um, but we're going to take our time. 
uh, it, uh, and so what I'd like to do, if you'd indulge me, I'd like to just make some introductory remarks because it's the first Sunday in John's Gospel, and the introductory remarks, I think, will help kind of frame the whole story, and it is a story. Uh, part of the, the reason that we don't oftentimes think of Bible stories being Bible stories is because oftentimes you go and you hear sermons that are kind of, where pastor just kind of picks and chooses whatever verses he wants to talk about. That's what's called topical preaching. Uh, and so we, we need to have a, a background. We need to have a context. And so I'll begin by just saying this. John is very unique among the Gospels. And when I say Gospels, that means Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Those are the Gospels. Those are the four Gospels. Um, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are what are typically referred to as the synoptic Gospels. And that is from the Greek word meaning to see together. Okay, so synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, to see together, that's what it means, and it's, they're called the synoptics because of their similarities to each other, and you've probably discovered this without maybe actually placing that label, synoptics, on them, where you read a story in Matthew, and you're like, I feel like I just read that story in Mark or in Luke, well, there's a reason for it. Um, they, they have a lot of similarities, but unlike the synoptic, John's gospel contains no narrative parables. No eschatological discourses, no accounts of Jesus exercising demons or healing lepers, no list of the twelve apostles, no formal institution of the Lord's Supper. John also does not record Jesus' birth, his baptism, transfiguration, temptation, his agony in Gethsemane, or even his ascension. On the other hand, John includes a large amount of material. More than 90% of what's in John's gospel is not found in the synoptics whatsoever. He contains more teaching about the Holy Spirit than found in the synoptics. And so when you think about John's gospel, probably the most critical thing that we need to figure out, we need to answer the question is, well, who's writing this? And you might say, what do you mean who's writing it? You keep calling it John's gospel. Okay, well, that's, that's true. But understanding who that person is is of vital importance. Now, like the other three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the Gospel of John, it never once names its author. But according to the testimony of the early church, John the Apostle wrote it. And the testimony of the early church goes all the way back to a man named Irenaeus. He was the first one who attributed John's authorship explicitly in his written work against heresies. That was his, his work, and he said, yep, John wrote it. But what makes Irenaeus, the early church father, just, I think, such a valuable resource is that he was a disciple of this guy named Polycarp. And Polycarp was a disciple of John himself. In other words, there is this direct line from John to this guy named Polycarp, who he discipled, to this guy named Irenaeus, who he discipled. And Irenaeus was like, yep, John wrote it. John wrote it 100%. And so while the title, the Gospel According to John, like right there in your Bible, um, that's not part of the original inspired text, but was later added in, in older manuscripts, uh, or rather newer manuscripts. Nevertheless, no manuscript has ever been found that attributes John's Gospel to anyone other than him. And here's something else to think about. John is mentioned 20 times by name in the synoptic gospels matthew mark and luke 20 different times he's mentioned by name he isn't mentioned a single time in this gospel as leon morris observes and i quote it is not easy to think of a reason why any early christian other than john himself should have 
completely omitted all mention of such a prominent apostle? Furthermore, only a preeminent person of unquestioned authority could have written a gospel that differed so markedly from the other three and also had it at the same time universally accepted by the church. So I'm going to submit to you, I'm going to argue that John wrote this. And I I suppose I could keep going probably for another 30 minutes talking about the authorship of John, but we have some text to exegete, so we don't have time for that. Um, So I'll hit the pause button there. But one other thing I want to point out to you in these kind of introductory comments to frame the story is John is the only one of the Gospels that contains a precise statement of the author's purpose. Precise statement. Uh, And I think we have it on the screen. In John chapter 20, verse 30 and 31, it says this, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And that by believing, you may have life in his name. The only gospel that contains a precise statement of the author's purpose. John focuses so much in his gospel on this idea of believing. He uses the phrase to believe nearly 100 times in his gospel. That's twice as much as anyone in the synoptics. And for that reason, he's often referred to by the nickname, the evangelist with his strong emphasis on belief and saving faith. And so what we have in the Gospels is this. We've got this guy, Matthew. He's writing primarily to Jewish, a Jewish audience. We've got Mark. He's writing primarily to a Roman audience. Luke is writing primarily to a Gentile audience at large. And John is writing primarily to a very Greek audience. Keep in mind, when John is writing this, Um, The presence of the Greeks, Christians, in the early church, by some estimates, outnumbered Jewish Christians 100,000 to 1. It's really difficult to overemphasize this point in the first century, which plays such a significant part of John's gospel. For for example, you're going to notice throughout this story, John will do these little things, like he loves to explain Jewish customs and Palestinian geography. You'll you'll notice how he translates Aramaic terms into Greek. He shows you such a keen awareness of his non-Jewish Greek readers who didn't really have much of a concept of Messiah. And we think about Messiah because, well, we do. We think of all the reasons. We're like, yeah, Jesus is the Messiah. His audience doesn't think this way. And that's kind of foggy because our our minds would have to be rewired to not really have much of an understanding. I say Jesus, you say Messiah. Like, it clicks like that. It wouldn't have so much for his audience at this time. And so we have in the early church, Jewish and non-Jewish worlds, Jewish and Greek Christian worlds colliding together, not altogether unlike our own day, in which there is this multitude of cultures and ethnic groups living together as part of both the global and the local church. So those are my introductory comments. Let's jump into the text. John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Pause. That's very dense, and for that reason we'll move very slowly through this. But the first thing that you're going to notice here 
is what I would call an origin story. John is telling us here an origin story, specifically with the introductory phrase, in the beginning was the word, origin. Now, if you wanted to know my origin, you wanted to locate my origin, you'd quickly realize, well, that's Anchorage, Alaska, November 1986, boom, that's, that's where my story starts, right? For John, he begins his gospel by locating Jesus' origin, the Christ the Son of God. And he does so in relation to time, namely, before time. Before time. In other words, in the beginning means before there was anything created, there was the Word, the Son of God. And that phrase, in the beginning was the Word, does that, does that sound similar at all to anyone? Uh, yeah, I get a north and south from Glenn. It sounds a little similar, right? Because we just finished Genesis, and you might remember that phrase, in the beginning, from there, right? Same exact word in the Greek. And that's not an accident. You're like, oh, wow, what are the odds of that? There are no odds. There's, there's no accident for that. Joe's being very intentional when he says, in the beginning. Because the first thing John's going to tell us about what Jesus did is that he created the universe. He tells us his origin, he's always existed. And then he tells us the very first thing that he did. He begins at this place of common ground, both for his Jewish audience, as well as, who's he primarily writing to? Yes, that's right, the Greeks, thank you. Before launching into this doctrine of the Trinity, he shows us Jesus' origin story. And it's really interesting because if you're familiar with Mark's gospel, Mark starts his gospel, he starts it with Jesus' public ministry. He's like, we're going to start right there. And it's almost as if John comes along and he's like, actually, I, I want to take you to a starting point before his public ministry. Oh yeah, where do you want to go? To like his birth? No, before that. What do you mean before that? Yeah, I, I want to go all the way back before, I don't know, before there was a universe. That's where I want to take you. This is his origin story. This is who he is. This is what he's done. He is both eternally existing before time and was present when time itself and the world was created. And, and so my, my first question would be this. Do you want to know God? Or are you content living with your busy, distracted, Instagram engulfing, Netflix crammed life that knowing God isn't really something you're concerned with. Because what I've discovered is that there are many who are totally fine claiming some sort of Christian identity but are apathetic about that identity. It's impossible to get to know the God of the Bible if all you do is ignore Him and have nothing to do with Him. It's not surprising when people tell me how they feel. Oh, I feel so far from God, Joe. I feel so distant from Jesus. As if, as if he's left or he's moved away. He hasn't moved. You have. You've walked out on him. See, the, the truth is, people don't like talking and spending time with persons that they don't know. Just as people don't like talking and spending time with a God they do not know. And so what happens is there's this cycle of darkness that surrounds us. It confuses us. And we find ourselves so very lost that we can't even hear God's voice any longer. 
This is what John wants for his readers. He wants them to know God. He wants his readers to know Jesus. He wants them to know the Word. He doesn't want Jesus to be a stranger any longer. So Jesus is the Word in verse 1. And if that isn't obvious that Jesus is the word in verse 1, it will be by the time we get to verse 14 in future sermons. But it is kind of odd, don't you think? You read, you read that word. We don't really call people word. We don't refer to people like that. It's an odd thing to say in our context. See, when we refer to people, we describe a person, we'll often do so based off of how they look or something they're really good at. We might say into effect, oh, that person's really smart or that person's really foolish or that person's tall or they're short or they're pretty or they're not pretty. So so there's there's a nuance of this expression that's oftentimes missed by the modern reader. And so in order to answer the question of why refer to Jesus as the word, We have to remember who he's writing to. He's writing primarily to a Greek audience. You see, the word, word, our English, and in the Greek, that's that's logos or logos, depending on how your professor pronounces it. That's what it is. Okay? But that concept for a Greek, oh, they would have understood it. The logos... The Logos was one filled with meaning for both Jews and definitely for Greeks. See, to the Greek philosophers, the Logos was the impersonal, abstract principle of reason and order in the universe. It it was, in some sense, a creative force, but it was also the source of wisdom. Now, the average Greek may not have fully understand all, all the nuances of the meaning with which the philosophers invested in that term. Logos, logos. But even to the average Greek person, that term would have signified one of the most important principles in the universe. Any Greek would have realized that. So when John uses this strange term to describe Jesus, he does so in an effort to connect with his audience who would have instantly gathered. This person? This word? This logos? This is important. This is really important. In fact, John's description of him in this way is done to clarify who Jesus is, where he's come from. In much the same way, he'll do the same thing when you get to John chapter 14, verse 6. You probably know that. He says, I am the, the way, the truth, and the life. And so, in the beginning was the word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. Uh, This is also very much at the heart of the historic doctrine of the Trinity. The Word. The Word is Jesus. That's who the Word is. Jesus Christ was with God. He he was God. He is God. And He has this relationship with God. And and there is one divine essence and three persons. Two of them are mentioned here. The Father and the Son. We, We learn those names later on in the book. And the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit will be introduced later on. And then it says in verse 2, he was in the beginning with God. He was in the beginning with God. In one sense, this verse is really just simply a repetition of the first two clauses of verse 1. But John includes these words to make sure that what he has already said is very much understood. He was in the beginning with God. 
And then he moves right along to verse 3. And he says, all things were made through him. And without him was not anything made that was made. So rich, so dense, these verses. Now suppose, um, say, a, a Muslim or a Jehovah Witness or someone from any brand of well, what we'd call Arianism, and, and that was this ancient heresy in the 4th century that said Jesus, he wasn't God, that he wasn't really eternal, existing forever, rather Jesus was created. Or as Arian himself loved to say, there was a time when the Son was not John's written verse 3 in a way that makes that impossible. So if a Jehovah Witness ever comes to you, or a Muslim ever comes to you, and they say, that's just a mistranslation. It should not read the word was God. It should read the word was a God. See, there is a, a way right here from the context that you can know that's wrong, even if you don't know any Greek at all. See, the, the, the last part of verse 3 makes that very plain. And without him was not anything made that was made. See that? John makes it crystal clear that anything in the category of made, Christ made it. Christ made it. If it was made, Christ made it. Therefore, to have something created and made you got to have Christ. That, that's a prerequisite, you might say. Therefore, Christ, he wasn't made because you need Christ if you're going to make anything. He wants to drive that home. And then he says in verse 4, In him, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. Just pause right there. So dense and so rich are these verses. In him was the life, and the life was the light of men. There's two key words in verse 4. And if you said, I think they're life and light, you'd be correct. Life and light are the key words in verse 4. The word life in John's gospel is always translated in the Greek, zoe, which John uses for spiritual or eternal life. It's been imparted to us by God. So when he says, in him, in Christ was life, the idea is not just physical life, but spiritual life is found in him as well. At which point John shifts and he says, this life is the light of men. Now he doesn't say that everyone knows the light. He doesn't say that everyone loves the light. But rather he says, this Life is the light of man. And you think about this connection. Processes for a moment. Very dense. Life is found in Christ. Christ is life. And that life produces something. It produces light. You with me so far? You think about what light is. Light's illuminating. That's what it does. In other words, by its very nature, light reveals what's hidden in the darkness. Light manifests and shows us the truth. It also shows us sin. It shows us error. Or in the case, if, if you were ever once a little kid, and I'm just going to assume that applies to everybody here, there was probably a point where you're like, I think there's a monster under my bed. Or there's, I, I heard a noise, it was in the closet or bed, I don't know what it was for you. So what do you do? 
You gotta, you gotta check it out. Or mom and dad's gotta check it out. We, we gotta make sure that there's nothing under there. So you turn the light on, or you shine a light, and the light reveals what is actually there. The light shows you truth from error. That's what it does. That's what it does here. It reveals to you truth in the middle of the darkness. Light and life are linked in the same way as you'll see in John chapter 8, verse 12. And I'll read that to you. And Jesus spoke to them again saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have, will have the light of life. That's how you avoid being lied to. That's how you avoid being deceived. And that is the union with Christ, the union with the light, the union with life itself. And then we come to verse 5. The light shines in the darkness. And the darkness has not overcome it. The darkness has not overcome it. In other words, the darkness, it tries to win. And to be clear, it doesn't go down without a fight. But here's the good news of verse 5. It cannot win. It cannot win. But it can't blind. It can deceive. It can do some serious damage. And the world is filled with darkness. I mean, pick your sin. Lust, greed, pride, selfishness. It's there. A very present darkness that we live in. But what we have just heard John say in verse 4, the life was the light of men. In other words, God is illuminating for us to see. He's showing us the way. He's showing us the truth. He's showing us the path that leads to eternal life. And John is making it very clear that the darkness It attempts to suppress the truth. But the good news is it cannot. The good news is the darkness loses and Jesus wins. But let me be 100% clear on this matter. There is no victory apart from Christ's victory. There is no victory apart from Christ's life. There is no victory apart from his atoning work on the cross. And there is no hope for mankind apart from sharing and being united with him in this truth. But unfortunately, that doesn't prevent the darkness from attacking or lying to us. The darkness is trying to take as many down as possible along the way. The darkness doesn't go silently. Sometimes I think we misunderstand maybe because of a certain Christian background that we came out of, that when we become Christians, the Christian life will just be filled with like cotton candy and butterflies and lollipops because somebody told you that, right? And they didn't tell you that the Christian life is hard. The darkness is trying to take down as many as possible along the way. The darkness does not go silently and along the way millions buy into the lies that it panders. The bottom line is this. There is no path moving forward in which one can stay in darkness and live. You can't stay in darkness and survive. You can't stay in darkness and have life. That's what verse 5 is getting at. The darkness will try to convince you that this isn't the case. It will lie. It will say things like, you're such a good person. You're doing just fine. The darkness will even help you justify sin. 
it'll make excuses, even though you know that what you're doing and how you're living isn't okay. The darkness will say things even like, oh, you don't need God. Or as my father likes to remind me how religion is just a crutch for weak people. You see, for that person, they are blinded by the darkness. Darkness that overpromises and underdelivers. For that person, they have totally bought into the lie that the darkness is propagating. Here's the good news. Despite the fact that the darkness puts up a strong fight, it can't defeat the light. It can't defeat the light. At the end of the day, the darkness cannot prevail. And the problem is, uh, sometimes we forget this. Sometimes we just, I don't know, like we're just feeling so discouraged by life or our circumstances. Sometimes we're just feeling so discouraged even by the, our sin in our life. We feel beat up, beat down. And then, and, then, and then there's the doubts. The doubts begin creeping in and we wonder, I don't even know, like, am I a Christian? Is God even proud of me? I wonder if in my effort of just trying to live for Jesus and obey Jesus, if it's even making a difference. And we look at the world and it seems that Christian values and morals are losing or they're on decline. Because they are. They are. And as Christians, we are, a, we are a shrinking minority. We are. Christians, we're a shrinking minority. Oh, and if you're a male Christian, you're, you're, you're like public enemy number one. If you're a male Anglo-Saxon, straight Christian, man, you, you are, it's open discrimination season on you. You're in big trouble. You're terrible. You are the hated minority in which reverse racism is propagated constantly throughout media and academia in the country. Not to mention what we witness regularly on the news. You turn the news on, it's depressing. People are dying every day. And you see atrocities. And you see what's just it's going on week after week, month after month with Putin and Ukraine. 150,000 plus people have died in a year. I, I, don't, I don't think we like process that. We don't process the, the 22 Christians a day in Nigeria that have been killed for like the last 18 months. Did you know that? That's what they estimate. 22 Christians a day in Nigeria. Dead! We see elected leaders on a weekly basis calling evil good and good evil, including the one that resides in 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. And you look up at the scoreboard, it feels disheartening. It feels like we're on the losing side. It's downright depressing at times. Depressing sometimes because we forget two major things. And number one, we forget that this isn't our home. Peter would use the phrase, we are elect exiles. 
We're living in Babylonia. We're living in captivity. We just forget that we are. Because we're in America. You are in captivity. We're in Babylonia. It's true. It's not your home. I'm not saying hate your country or anything like that. But we forget that. We forget that we are elect exiles. And I think the second reason we get so depressed at times is because we forget what John is saying here in verse 5. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And you might say, it feels like the darkness is winning at times. And I can, I can understand that. I can, I can feel that sentiment. But the beauty of this word is that the light it produces. Because the light shows you what's really happening. Like when you were a kid. The light shows you what's actually under the bed. The light shows you the actual score on the scoreboard. Or as the Apostle Paul might say in Ephesians 5.8, For at one time you were darkness, yes, but you are light. You are now light in the Lord, so walk as children of light. That's why you should feel confident. See, if, if you know and you love Jesus, you're in the light. And the light, the light wins. That means Jesus wins. And all those who believe in him and love him, the children of the light, they win too. And this light that's shining in the darkness, let me clarify. This isn't an ordinary light. The light that's shining in the darkness here, it's not like a stoplight in the middle of an intersection and you're like, eh, I'm going to ignore it and just roll right through it. It's not that kind of light. This light's very powerful. This light's more powerful than the darkness because this life created the powers of darkness. That's what verse 3 reminds us of. And no created thing is more powerful than its creator. And someone might say, well, hold on, hold on, fact check. You just say no created thing is more powerful than its creator? Yep. I'm going to fact check you right now. Okay. Nuclear bomb. See, that's more powerful than the men that created it. A nuke could destroy its maker. The problem with that logic is this. Making a bomb out of materials that exist already and which are controlled by laws you did not write are completely different than creating out of nothing the very materials of the universe and the laws that control them. If you can make something out of nothing like God, you can always turn that something into nothing. And therefore, the Creator always has the upper hand in this world. He always has the upper hand. But that person's in public office, or that just happened. It doesn't matter. He is on his throne. He is calling the shots. And the powers of darkness know this. You think about like Matthew 8, 29. Jesus with the, with the demons. Remember what they do? They cry out to him. What have you to do with us? Son of God, have you come to torment us before the time? They know that they are set for destruction. They know they are on the losing side. They know the light will triumph. So be of good cheer, brothers and sisters. Christ has overcome the world. He has overcome the darkness. He has overcome politicians who call good evil and evil good. He's overcome the media. He's overcome every opposition to himself. Or as John will later write in chapter 1633, I have said these things to you 
that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. Take heart. I have overcome the world. Be of good cheer, Christians. He has already won. He has already won. And for those of you who are united with him, so have you. Jesus, we love you. We love you so much. And I am so thankful for the encouragement of this story to be reminded of your origin before time itself existed, to be reminded of the work that you have done in making everything in the universe, speaking it into existence, to be reminded of the fact that even though the darkness seems at times like it is winning, it is not. It cannot. Lord, I pray for our hearts, for those of us who have heavy hearts in here today, for those of us that struggle when we witness the wickedness and atrocities of this world, to know that you have overcome the world. In you there is light, and in you there is life, and in you there's just hope. Thank you that there's hope. Wouldn't make it without that, Lord. Jesus, we love you. We pray this in your name. Amen.